Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week from the great state of Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director, is firmly ensconced in her kitchen. Claire, how are you doing today? You know, I got a hot tub cup of tea, a little bit of raspberry <laughs> kringle, so all is good in the Zotki world. Oh, yes. Well, you know, it's been, geez, so many months, so many months from our from our homes, but it's great to see you again, Claire. And as always, Robert Clegg, Craig, excuse me, Robert, I uh, can't even talk, I guess, this morning. Robert Craig, our executive director at Citizen Action, is with us. Robert, good to see you from your... Your uh, condo on the east side of Milwaukee, how you doing? Well, south side, if you will. Oh, south east side, side Bayview. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, I'm glad to hear that uh, uh, Claire is eating Wisconsin health food. That would be Kringle. Well, so, well, it's good, it's good to see you all uh, as we head into uh, the holiday s- season or um, Chinooka as uh, Smokey Robinson <laughs> wishes you all a happy Chinooka. If you haven't seen that, it's worth checking out on Cameo. But with that, we've got to jump in. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, it is wild. Uh, we definitely will get to uh, the 2020 election. We believe it is officially over. Uh, the Electoral College made it official this week, and uh, so did the Wisconsin Supreme Court. We'll get into that a little bit later. We're also going to talk a little bit about a DWD audit and all the stuff that's been going on with the challenges around unemployment insurance. Um, but before we get into all of that, we have we are going to start with COVID, right? Because it is defining uh, this whole year and continues to define the current moment. Uh, as we record, um, Wisconsin continues to see its numbers falling. They're still at significantly high levels. Uh, but nationally, uh, the the numbers continue to spike as we head into the holiday season, uh, and of course, uh, healthcare professionals are extremely concerned uh, that we're going to continue to see spiking numbers and uh, continue to see escalating death rates. Uh, and within all of that, uh, we have often can fail to spend enough time talking about just the legitimate and deep and widespread financial hardship. Uh, that folks are feeling around this country and certainly in this state. And just quite frankly, how there's been a complete failure of leadership from the federal to the state level to address this. And Claire, I wanted you to center all of our conversation with just um, a study that really kind of lays out uh, uh, the the significance of, of the financial hardship that Americans are feeling and why it is so critical that we need COVID relief at the federal and state level. Claire? Thanks, Matt. And I think you're, you're totally right. Um, there's a lot of news coverage about how bad the COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are in the country. Um, I mean, just this past week, the U.S. broke new records. Again, we're just constantly breaking new records because the number of cases and, and everything just keeps going up. Um, and this most recent one is that we hit Uh, just under a quarter of a million hospitalizations in the country, right? So we talk a lot about those numbers, um, but I I continue to feel like we don't spend enough time shedding light on um, how... uh, how much hardship there is in this country because of um, the 
coronavirus pandemic and also because of the lack of leadership from our elected officials to care for people who are hurt and suffering right now. Um, and so the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey did a survey um, in late November and the Center for Budget Policy Priorities, a, a really reputable nonpartisan think tank, um, analyzed that data and put out a report earlier this month. And it showed some really alarming uh, numbers. And I've talked about some of these numbers um, over the past several months. Um, and you'll see that these, these numbers have also increased over the last few times we've talked about them. Um, so the survey found that nearly 83 million adults, that's 34% of all adults in this country, more than one in three adults in, um, in the United States, report that their household uh, found it somewhat or very difficult to cover usual expenses such as food, rent, mortgages, car payments, medical expenses, student loans, things like that. Um, and uh, nearly 26 million adults or 12%, so their household didn't get enough to eat um, sometimes or often in the last seven days. But those hardship rates are even higher for children. Uh, it's estimated that now in the United States, 45%, almost half, 45% of all children in the United States live in a household that reported it was somewhat or very difficult to cover their usual expenses and are experiencing uh, food shortage. So the, the impacts of this uh, pandemic and its economic fallout are really widespread. Um, but just like, um, just like the uh, medical, physical hardships of this pandemic, the, the toll on lives and hospitalizations, um, the economic fallout has also been particularly hard on um, this country's Black and Latino populations. Um, so it's, it's really important to mention that and not lose sight of it. Yeah, and look, those numbers—they first of all, they're they're, they're huge, um, but they only make the situation and the lack of action. And I want to start at the federal level, glaring. And this isn't just a Trump problem. This is also a congressional problem, and just the we have been unable to get basic uh, help. Looks like. There may be a deal this week. Robert, I wanted to get your initial thoughts. And then Claire, uh, before we go to break, also get your thoughts on, I mean, do we actually, I mean, there's a shot. We might actually have some federal support. Now it is not going to be certainly close to what was pushed earlier, uh, but certainly may be some aid uh, to individuals. Robert? Well, before, before I say that, let me just say, and I think a lot of the media is doing a disservice on this. Uh, the COVID-19 cases in Wisconsin are not low. To talk about trends like, gee, deaths in World War II came down the last week while they're when they're still abominably high, that's what we're looking at here. It's really, really high, and we have a positive test rate at an astronomical 27%, which means a lot of people aren't being tested. And we know that most of the spread, in fact, not just some, but most, may be people without symptoms. So there's a whole lot of people with adequate testing who have it and are spreading it in the community. These aren't even accurate numbers, and they're astronomical by any standard. And it's more like a storm or wave. It goes up and down, it ebbs and flows. So every time it starts to go down, we say, see, it's receding. Well, that's going to come back bigger. Okay, folks? And so that leads to the economic consequences. We know the consequences of death. And it's absolute malpractice at the federal and state level 
uh, led uh, by the right-wing Republican Party that doesn't have basic empathy for people other than the wealthiest among us and the most powerful and connected, and period. So we have a depression for the bottom 50% of income earners. And of course, that group is disproportionately people of color, but it's not all people of color. And it, it breaks down into this two economies that's been created over the last couple decades. It's why Wall Street can still be taking off. If you're a knowledge worker, if you have marketable skills, you can work from home because you can because you have a kind of job that can be done over Zoom or other virtual means or in writing, then you're doing quite fine. And billionaires are doing great. They're gaining billions and extra uh, uh, wealth, including here in Wisconsin with the eight billionaires, seven of which are right-wing Republicans who fund right-wing causes. But then folks who have to go out in the economy and work, from restaurant workers, retail workers, not only are they high, at much higher risk of COVID-19 because they can't socially distance, they're much more likely that their jobs aren't coming back. They're not just disappear, not just temporarily gone. They're not coming back. And the reason getting this last minute deal on, on, on COVID relief at the national level is so important, even though it's, a, it's not nearly what it needs to be, is because we're going to extend unemployment. Without this, it was going to be cut off in the middle of a pandemic with depression-like conditions for many, many, many Americans. Uh, and so that's the big thing. There are some more resources in there that will help with vaccination, but not enough. The Republicans are refusing to aid state and local governments. And not only is it a fundamental function of government to protect people's well-being and their lives and livelihoods, which they have completely refused to do, but it's the federal, only the federal government that can raise additional revenue that has the ability through the Fed to deficit spend in a crisis, which we did in World War II. We folks to do in crises. State and local governments do not. And this is really harming the response dramatically. And it's going to harm the distribution of the vaccine. And this is a week where it turns out, latest revelation, you keep being shocked by Trump, that he had people placed in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Department of Health and Human Services that were pushing for more infections because they believed in this hoax theory of herd immunity and were trying to gut the CDC and even brag that the CDC would take decades to recover from all the damage they've done to it. Oh, it might take decades to recover from Trump, but we got to take a break. When we get back, Claire, we're going to go back to you to get your comments on uh, the possibility for actual federal action on COVID relief. Your list, we are listening, <laughs> you are listening, excuse me, to the Battleground Wisconsin where some in action. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about potential that there might actually be some COVID relief in particular before the break, Robert mentioned one very important piece of the talked about legislation would be the extension of unemployment insurance, which is critical. We had another, we're cl close to another million people file for uh, unemployment last week. Uh, these numbers continue to go up and with uh, the spiking nationally and the increased lockdowns in a number of parts of the country, these numbers are not gonna get better. Claire, uh, we're going to see this. It looks like it. Uh, we possibly even before Christmas. Your thoughts? Yeah. 
Yes, it is, um, by all accounts, uh, exceedingly likely that there will be a COVID relief package that is passed by Congress and hits the president's desk, um, maybe even before this podcast airs. It might, we're taping on Thursday, it might be passed on Thursday and, um, uh, or released on Thursday and passed on Friday, right? Um, but what we don't know yet is exactly what will be in it. We do know a few things, and we also, to Robert's point, know some things that are really important that aren't going to be in it. Um, so we know that it will include um, another round of direct payments to uh, everyone in the country, um, or at least based on their eligibility. We know lots of folks, such as undocumented folks, are often left out of um, relief funds. Um, but it will not be $1,200 like the first round of payments were. Um, it is much more likely that it could be closer to $600, $700. Um, if Democrats are successful, it might be a little bit more than that. Um, but we should prepare ourselves for it to be much less, um, which, you know, tying it back to our earlier um, conversation about just the staggering level of hardship that our country is experiencing and how many folks are having trouble feeding their families, a singular, you know, six, $700 payment will help put food on the table for a couple weeks, um, but is nothing compared to the uh, months and months of, of hardship that folks um, have experienced and are very likely to continue to experience into 2021. Um, I've also heard rumors that um, this package will include um, as Robert said, um, extension of unemployment uh, insurance benefits, uh, which I think is driving this timeline of this bill. But also I've heard rumors of um, uh, rental, some rental assistance and an extension of an evictions moratorium. Um, now that said, it could just be the more limited version of the evictions moratorium that the federal government originally passed that is um, significantly less expansive than the one that the CDC passed that um, is also set to expire um, in, in January, I believe. Um, but I will say the reason why, to Robert's point, um, a lot of people are really upset about this bill is that it doesn't include more funding to state and local governments. And states around the country, like Wisconsin, are going into budget cycles facing um, a lot of challenges. States are going to be responsible for vaccine distribution. They're responsible for um, all of the infrastructure of helping people through the pandemic. Um, and Republicans, um, what, what they have sort of staked what they want um, for this relief um, is uh, corporations' uh, limited liabilities in COVID. So the the limited liability for corporations and state and local aids are the two pieces that got pulled out of this um, package negotiation. And I think it just shows where these Republicans' priorities are, that, they're, that they would rather, um, that they're willing to leverage the health and well-being of their constituents and the lives of their constituents in favor of trying to get um, uh, breaks, legal breaks, and financial protection for corporations. It is also, and Robert, I want to get more of your thoughts. It is also worth pointing out that, again, we also continue to have no action at the state level in any way on COVID relief. And, and there's no reason why the state couldn't also uh, provide relief, Robert. Right. There has been no extra money put in other than the money passed at the federal level which was only made possible in the CARES Act by the Democratic Congress, whatever uh, soon-to-be ex-President Trump wants to say. Uh, 
Uh, they just passed on some of that money. And by the way, a substantial chunk of the money in this new relief package is going to be repurposed CARES money. So it's even less generous than you think it is. But just to think, and you don't have proposals for spending money from the governor either. Uh, if you, you can't really drive public opinion unless you have proposals out there they're against. But really, we need the full tax cuts uh, that the, the giveaways, tax giveaways Walker did to corporations and billionaires right now. There's nothing we can cut anywhere else or any revenue we can generate in this kind of crisis. We've gone from a can-do government that uh, went to the moon, won World War II, uh, to a can't-do government, and it's because of the underlying ideology of the right, which take over, taken over the Republican Party, and which has greatly influenced the Democratic Party. Don't the Democratic Party is not entirely immune uh, to this notion that it is not the role of government at all, and that somehow the market will take care of everything. And yeah, that, by the way, how's that going? How's the market taking care of the depression? for 50% of the population, which is going to be ongoing, is going to require major relief. And so we can't, get, we can't forget it's a moral outrage. But as I said last week, I think the, uh, us on the progressive side also need to be try to conscious of our own dogmas and ideological kind of um, assumptions. I do think that the critique of the Democrats for not getting more in the in the federal relief package is off base because there's nothing more that can be gotten from these folks and all the, and and you can't really critique Nancy Pelosi for not playing hardball. She has held out all summer and fall, and and, and you know McC uh, McConnell played this evil game where he put forward this liability shield. And what does that mean? It means companies like meatpacking plants, they're deliberately killing their workers for profit, would now have a liability shield, would never be held accountable uh, for gross negligence that, is, uh, that, that amounts to manslaughter, at the very least, if you really think about it. And so, uh, and so he did that cynically so he, he could then damage the plan and damage state and local government. Because they think state and local government, even though Republicans run it all over the country, is some sort of liberal thing as opposed to something that we all do together, an essential part of our democracy and our ability to respond in a crisis. Robert, you mentioned, you know, one of the things that was mentioned, right, was unemployment insurance and having that be expanded. You all talked about uh, the idea that in many ways we have not set up a system really to handle this kind of situation. In fact, our unemployment system is is set up deliberately to be complicated, to be cumbersome, and to push people out and find ways to make them ineligible. And so this gets to our current situation here in the state that I want to get some comment on. You know, we had an audit that came out that, you know, not a shock, showed that there's real problems with uh, how folks been able to get paid, or let's be more precise, not paid in any kind of timely manner through the State Department uh, of Workforce Development. And, and the, the fact is, and we've talked about this before, this is not an excuse for the fact that this is going on and that this hasn't been addressed in a better manner, but we have a completely dysfunctional situation in, 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 in Madison and between the Democrats and the Republicans in the legislature. And unfortunately, uh, this this relic of a system has has left people high and dry, and this audit definitely reveals it. But I, I also want to get you guys to thought the choiceness of the fact that the, they come back 
the Republicans come back for a hearing around last week around the election conspiracies, and now to come and pound around DWD, and you have got a Senate Majority uh, Leader, or he's going to soon to be, um, Kapanga haranguing workers, saying 50 hours a week isn't enough. They've been working overtime now for straight, you know, since March. Uh, these guys haven't worked in, what, eight months, and they're blaming DWD? There's just a complete lack of accountability to solve this problem. It gets back to where we started, Claire, a complete lack of leadership recognizing and appreciating the hardship that people are going through. Claire? Uh, yeah, I agree. Right. I mean, I think you you summed it up well. Um, I, I don't think I have very many pundity things to say, uh, but uh, I've said this week after week, right, that our Wisconsin's legislature has um, really abdicated all of their responsibility to to care for their constituents. And um, I, especially being off all summer and campaigning all summer, uh, it's it is unfathomable for me that they could have been in their districts viewing this hardship firsthand, talking to, I mean, statistically, they, they must have been talking to um, a sizable percentage of folks in their communities who were facing these hardships, and yet they, and they didn't do anything about it. It just, I mean, who has, who has that kind of heart? It's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, it is. It, Claire, it's, it's a head-scratcher, and it's why, hopefully, the federal government will actually do something. And as you're listening to me, Claire, I hope you're right that uh, this gets done today and, and starts at least moving. And the reality is much, much more is going to need to be done immediately under a Biden administration. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, when we come back. We've got a lot much more to talk about, but we got to take a break. We're at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Uh, so we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about sort of the problems. Uh, there is some opportunity around the corner. Uh, it is official. It, the, the electors have uh, voted and uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the next president and vice president. Uh, and that does provide real opportunity. Uh, one of the big news that certainly came out this week is the Biden transition team is uh, making a lot of noise around their desire to move very quickly to open up ACA marketplaces uh, very early uh, in their administration to, to respond to COVID. Uh, and so expand the rules as to how folks could uh, reapply, but also put significant resources back into actually promoting the Affordable Care Act, reaching out to people, providing the kind of information that actually would help get folks um, signed up. Claire, uh, this would be a huge step that hopefully could be done fairly quickly uh, and would be a marked transition from what we've constantly talked about, ACA under assault, to somebody who comes in and actually says, no, let's start to invest in it and support it. 
Yeah, it is really important that we are going to have a president in the White House again who uh, cares about health care. Now, it's true that health care, it's, it's not like health care is Joe Biden's jam, right? I mean, he's always been much more into um, economic and foreign policy than health care policy. Um, but we know that he was a stalwart defender of the Affordable Care Act. And so it's no surprise that um, sort of opening the Affordable Care Act back up is, uh, and trying to roll back some of the things that Trump has done is going to be one of the first things that he takes on around healthcare once he's in office. Um, I will say that um, I, I think it's good that he has appointed something, somebody like Javier Bercera to the HHS secretary, who does have a really, really strong, really progressive um, background in healthcare to sort of supplement um, the you know, Biden's uh, weakness in that area. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that will be a really strong partnership. Um, but I'll, I'll punt to Robert to see if he has anything more to say on um, this particular issue. Well, this actually is connected, if you think about it, to the whole situation with the backlog on unemployment claims. This is a, at least a move in the direction of actually governing and making government work as opposed to sabotaging government. So on the DWD issue, Department of Workforce Development, we know that the Walker administration did everything they could to underfund it, to make it harder to sign up. Now, was it great under the Doyle administration? No. So there's some bipartisan blame here, and there was no pr proposals out of the Evers administration when they took office to improve it. But anyone going to the website knows it has endless questions that are difficult screening questions. It's overly complicated because we're more afraid of some small amount of potential fraud than we are of people losing their livelihoods and kids going homeless and without food, which is what we're talking about here. And we have Republicans there uh, saying, we need to open up and expose everyone to a virus because people get depression if they're, if they're, if they're cooped up. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> One of the biggest impacts on suicide and depression is being unemployed. And you make that worse if you've lost your income and you can't get a phone call through in the phone center. Yet the DWD was picking up 1% of calls, folks. But look, on the ACA, right. On the Trump side, they're still, he and the Republicans, trying to sabotage the ACA because they hate the idea that the government would even serve this function during a pandemic. It is the equivalent, since we have a war against a virus, to undermining your country when you're at war. It really is that bad. And so we're seeing the beginnings of government here. He's doing what is reasonable. You have a crisis. The ACA is designed up to be opened up for special enrollment periods. Uh, we're supposed to promote it so people know it's there. He'd restore the advertising money. Uh, but we should bear in mind we shouldn't do celebrations in the streets over this because this is just basic care and governing. Uh, we do need to realize that a whole lot of people are not going to be able to afford the Affordable Care Act. It is a, they, they are, cannot deal with private insurance and its co-pays and deductibles. And there was an ability under federal law for states to open up their Medicaid programs, Badgercare in Wisconsin, to almost everyone who came uninsured to a hospital. It's called presumed eligibility. State, some states did it. We didn't even propose it from the governor. I understand that the legislature wouldn't have, would, would have vetoed it and used their lame duck authority to do it, but you've got to at least do what the right thing was, and the right thing is guaranteed universal 
healthcare during the pandemic, no cost for testing, no cost for treatment, no cost for any of the repercussions of, of COVID. We did get the free treatment and we did surprise medical bills. So kudos to that coming through the process and the governor leading on that. But there's much more to do and there's much more for Biden to do than this, but it's just an obvious first step and it's a breath of fresh air given what we've been experiencing in the Trump administration, what we're still experiencing with this do-nothing Republican state legislature in Wisconsin. I want to remind our listeners that, Robert, as you mentioned that, that we want to continue to encourage you to reach out to the governor's office uh, the governor is currently entertaining exactly what he is going to put into his state budget, which we have talked about before on the show. Uh, that budget will be introduced on January 26th. And what Robert just talked about, there's some really important things that Governor Evers needs to put in his budget. And one of them is a badge care public option that will start to address some of the uh, issues of access to health care and to, you know, expanding uh, the ability of a, of a, a good uh, public program like Badger Care to folks who don't have access in this time of COVID. It would be uh, an incredibly important thing to put in there and drive the conversation. Um, and so please contact the governor's office, encourage him. Needs to put Badger Care public option in his state budget. There's other things, and we'll continue to talk more about the state budget uh, in upcoming shows. Um, but we need to talk still. I, we got to talk more also about the election because, you know, we mentioned the Supreme Court this week. The, the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, did rule, finally, uh, that they threw out, right, the, the, the Trump phony, frivolous campaign charges. But it was a four to three vote. It's just shocking, right? Uh, Hagedorn, again, steps up and... Uh, writes the majority opinion with the three liberal justices. And good Lord, I think we all now have a continue and ought to have a deep appreciation for the value of the Supreme Court election. But it was way, way too close uh, here, Claire, <laughs> it, for, for my thoughts. Uh, but it looks like we're about to, uh, you know, th this is done. Uh, tell that to Ron Johnson, though. Ron Johnson had quite a, a, a bleep show uh, of a hearing, trying to drudge up all the conspiracies. Claire, is this ever going to end? <laughs> oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> I really, really hope that this will end. Um, no, I think the worst is behind us. <laughs> um, well, it was his last hearing. He is, he gaveled out. He's done. No more Homeland Security. Hopefully. Let's go Georgia. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, so this is maybe this is like a good opportunity to give my plug for if you are interested <laughs> in helping to flip those Georgia Senate seats, um, then you should subscribe to Citizen Action of Wisconsin's weekly newsletter that comes out on Friday because there's information in it on how to uh, sign up to phone bank and text bank into Georgia. Um, okay plug over. Uh, yes, I am really hopeful that we are finally putting this election behind us. Um, and um, the 
uh, Wisconsin State Supreme Court obviously made national news this past week with um, their rulings on um, election-related matters. Um, I got a lot of texts and um, intros and meetings from people around the country that were like, oh, we're so happy for Wisconsin and your court did the right thing. And I'm like, you don't understand how close it was. There were three justices who are just willing to disenfranchise billions of people because they, you know, have some sort of ideological preference for a particular candidate and 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 are not making decisions based on law. Um, like you don't understand other people in the country how close it was in Wisconsin to um, some really doing some harm to our democracy. Um, but yeah, you know, our folks cast their uh, their electoral votes. Let's move forward. Robert, do you have any final closers on <laughs> this week in the 2020 election? Well, it tells you how dangerous modern right-wing conservatism is. You have three justices that it's hard to call them judges because you had Trump appointees at the federal level rejecting all of these frivolous lawsuits. And you got three of them that apparently will do anything, rubber stamp anything brought to them by their team. Now, why we would give such people 10-year appointments and this sort of authority, it makes no sense. Believe me, any framers of the Wisconsin Constitution would not have supported this sort of behavior. Courts are supposed to be responsible. There is no precedent. There is no legal basis for blanket uh, throwing out of tens of thousands of votes. And remember, only in two counties, the ones that happen to be the most democratic and, uh, and, where, and between them where most people of color in the state live, uh, and nowhere else, the precedent would be fraudulent vote after per fraudulent vote. And these all were complaints about how the system worked that could have been made before the election. So you make them before the election, and that is, precedent and it's just stunning how bad the state supreme court is much worse than the u.s supreme court which is saying something no we have a precedent for taking breaks every 11 minutes with that we got to take a break here at the battleground wisconsin welcome back into the battleground wisconsin our last segment we have got to first of all start by thanking all of our members and folks who aren't members who participated in the first annual, and I'll just say it's probably gonna be annual, a Driftless Toy Drive. And wanna give a shout out to our Driftless Co-op and our organizer, Ben Wilson, and all the members uh, who organized that toy drive. Uh, huge participation, lots of families uh, are going to have toys thanks to the members who donated to that and want to give everyone a thank you for participating in that. Um, but with that, I do want us to, uh, to talk about uh, some news uh, that came out this week, Robert. It was in a story, and I'm going to ask you to take a lead on this, but um, around Black Lives Matter. And the Black Lives Matter movement and activists in the Black Lives Matter movement being called terrorists by a police association. Uh, Robert, a little more details on this and why this is such a big deal and, and, and that this is actually an in-state association. Robert? Yeah, and this has to do with the professionalism of police, which we're going to be talking about more and more. We're working on this issue 
uh, internally thinking about strategy uh, next year. Uh, this was something called the International Law Enforcement Educators and Training Association. So these folks do trainings, and a number of Wisconsin officers uh, or leaders are on are part of this organization, are like in its leadership, including from Kenosha. We saw what happened, both with Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times, uh, and then also with the fraternization and the disparate treatment of white nationalists, white supremacists, one of whom killed two peaceful protesters. And so this training manual not only says Black Lives Matters are terrorists, who work with gangs and drug cartels to engage in urban guerrilla warfare. Uh, it encouraged uh, basically police, uh, very uh, forceful police response to a peaceful protest movement, okay? That is, uh, th that is the closest thing we've had in a long time to the 1960s civil rights movement as far as being a real, organic, broad-sped, multiracial movement uh, for, for liberation and freedom. And so this is just disgusting. It's a very long training manual. It's full of things like that. And as a result, uh, this organization, because the Associated Press did a story about a 176-page document called Understanding Antifa and Urban Guerrilla Warfare. By the way, Antifa is a myth, okay? There's a, there's a loosely organized group of people. It's nothing like the threat of right-wing violence. It's not what the right wants to say it is. But Police officers believe this stuff, and that is horrible. We need a, we need, if we're going to have men with, and some women with guns, they need to be highly professional. We don't require them to be professional like doctors or, or nurses or other people who deal with people's lives, right, that hold life in the balance. And it's just stunning. The Wisconsin Examiner, kudos to them. Uh, did a wonderful story uh, rounding all this up by uh, Henry Redmond and Isaiah Holmes, who were two really promising young reporters at, at the Examiner. And so this is just more the reason that we need major police reform, not a few Band-Aids, not a few, it, we should ban chokeholds, but it's a lot deeper than that. It is also worth pointing out this week, uh, Robert, obviously, you know, in the context of what you brought up, uh, the city of Milwaukee this week, the Common Council voted to, at least for now, they're going to take it back up again in January, but um, to turn down uh, the cops, federal cops grant. Uh, this grant would have allowed them to hire 30 police officers, but um, the council uh, took a what I would say is a fairly historic stance uh, and voted down this money. Um, and it has become, it's become big news here in Milwaukee. Mayor Tom Barrett, uh, the day the vote occurred, uh, had a very public statement uh, against this. Um, but uh, we have a real discussion here about whether we're gonna move away from more police and move in a direction that looks at other alternative uses. And it is worth pointing out that the, the council members um, accurately point out that this isn't just free money that comes from the federal government and there's absolutely no cost to the city. Um, obviously, if you have 30 police officers, we're well aware of the retirements, the pensions, all the commitments that go into that, especially when we're looking to move, when, Clearly, uh, the council is looking to move in a different direction in terms of 
where they'd like to see resources go. Um, Claire or Robert, uh, just if any of you have any thoughts on this or Claire, if you had any comments also on uh, the information Robert uh, presented. Uh, sure. Uh, so quickly, I'll say about um, the the Milwaukee Council Common Council of turning down those positions. Um, I think you I think you summarized what happened pretty well. The only thing I would add is I think this shows the power of sustained community organizing, and um, how uh, we can have as activists and advocates in the community can actually have um, a direct effect on um, how our elected officials behave. Um, I don't think that those actions would have happened if it hadn't been for the leadership of community members in Milwaukee who are being organized and working directly with um, city government on budget priorities and things, right? So um, I think that could that's a great example that we should hold on to in, in other fields uh, around the importance of organizing and what we're doing. Uh, Robert, were you going to say something? Uh, you can go ahead. I thought you were finishing, but you were pausing, so go ahead. Okay. Um, what I'll say in response to Robert's comments about the article is that um, you know, as he was talking, I was thinking about how history gets written, and those of us who live through these um, these moments where you can feel like history is being made, like something historic is happening, um, we we will remember what really happened. But people who learn about what happened um, often learn based on lessons that are created from um, items of record, right? Um, things that are written down by trusted sources. And so when you codify, when you codify um, things that aren't true or things that are, you know, so heavily spun and written through um, lenses of ideology, like trading manuals from seemingly reputable sources that refer to Black Lives Matter um, activists and leaders as terrorists, it gives it, you know, it could give some legitimacy to these ideas in a way that isn't true um, and um, or at least gives them substance that people in the future might think they're true because they didn't live through these moments. And, and this is how misconceptions get um, get codified and continue to. Um, like like take on more meaning than they should have. Um, I feel like I'm not explaining this idea super well, um, but but I think it's important to shed light on um, when when fringe ideas like this become an establishment ideas and how they become establishment ideas. And I think part of that is when they get sort of written down and presented as fact that you would use in a training situation. Um, and that's why it's important to sort of expose when these, when these bad ideas are being written down in this kind of way. Robert, you get the last uh, thoughts on this topic. I just say to that point, look, the FBI has done reports. The police are closely interpenetrated by right-wing extremists, and this shows them running their major, one of their major training associations with great ties in Wisconsin. And there needs to be, that needs to be pulled out root and branch, investigated, and it's not happening. So what happened, happened, and this goes into the next year, we have a lot of work to do. The movement made it possible for Milwaukee for the first time I can remember to turn down extra federal money for more cops because the default has always been more cops, more safety. 
even though that's not true, right? And so that's a start. So we have a mayor who's a Democrat uh, complaining that we ought to be able to find a way to take the money. So, but here's the problem, right? We have to stick with this because we have not convinced most of the public that there's an alternative to public safety. They still think more police, more safety. They don't understand these alternatives. That's why defund the police gets demagogued on because they don't realize that there are other investments you can make in community safety, in mental health, in, in substance abuse, uh, in poverty and housing that would have a bigger effect on safety. But we don't do it because all the money goes to these police and they tend to be right-wing agents of suppressing marginalized people and people of color and other people who are poor. Uh, and so it's a police force to protect the wealthy and the privileged against the unprivileged. So there's a lot of work to do because these common council people who did this courageously will be primaried and attacked when they run for re-election for having less cops unless we have continued this movement and created an alternative. So they took a risk and they're to be commended for that, but there's a lot more work to do as a movement and with our allies and government having an inside-outside strategy. With that, we are going to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We'll see you next week.